Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Titus Kafar. Titus is an artist whose paintings, sculptures, and installations examine the history of representation by transforming its styles and mediums with formal innovations to emphasize the physicality and dimensionality of the canvas and materials themselves. His commitment to social engagement has led him to move beyond traditional modes of artistic expression to establish Next Haven, a new national arts model that empowers emerging artists and curators of color through education and access. Next Haven accelerates professional careers in the arts. Titus is the recipient of numerous prizes and awards, including a MacArthur Fellowship, a Art for Justice Fund grant, a Robert Rauschenberg Artist and Activist grant, to name a few. His work is included in the collections of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, the 21C Museum Collection, Detroit Institute of Arts, the Art Institute of Chicago, MoMA, the Brooklyn Museum, the Whitney Museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Yale University Art Gallery, amongst others. Please read his expanded bio at CerebralWomen.com and enjoy this episode featuring Titus Kafar. Titus, thank you for joining me today on my podcast. Of course, of course. Thank you for having me. Let's start with, when did you discover your artistic passion? You know, it was really interesting. I don't think it's how most of or many of my friends experience with finding art was. I didn't have a real propensity for it. I wasn't trying to do it since I was a kid. It was something I stumbled on. And I stumbled on art, honestly, while, as I say, (laughs) and I've said many times, I guess, while trying to get a date. I was trying to go out with this amazing woman who was four years older than me. Very, very mature, very, very brilliant musician, actually. And on our first encounter, she uh, she said, you know, you're a really nice guy, but you're really young and you don't really seem to be thinking too much about your future. And so sort of as a joke, I went down to the junior college, registered for some classes and came back and said to her, I'm thinking about my future. Can we go out now? And so when I registered for those classes, I registered relatively randomly. I literally have no memory of having any thought behind it. But if I had to attribute some meaning to the art history class that was on that registration list, it was probably a lack of understanding and the thought, well, it says art, so it should probably be easy. I think that if there was some logic behind it, that was it. 
but started dating this amazing person and the relationship was going really well. And it made me realize that if I was going to continue in this relationship, I needed to continue in these art classes and the history classes and all the other classes that I had taken. Now, I was not an academic. I didn't do very well in school at all. My GPA was embarrassingly low. But when I got in this art history class, there was something about being asked to remember information based on image that was kind of a breakthrough for me, a breakthrough in my understanding of the way that my brain worked. And so I ended up leaving that class with a B, which was a miracle for me. I, I, I hadn't received a B in a class prior to that. It made me think, well, maybe there's something to this. And I started trying to use this sort of visual strategy to learn other information. Um, I also realized at the same time that my auditory, that is my ability to take information through listening, was much better than other forms for me. So I, I used those two things together. And before I knew it, I was doing well in school for the first time. I uh, was on the honor roll, the dean's list, the president's list. And at the end of my junior college experience, my counselor said to me, you know, uh, we have a program that allows you to transfer to the state school because your your grades are very high. So I said, great, let's do that. I transferred to the state school. And at that school, I took uh, my very first painting class. And I was in my mid-20s and I absolutely loved it. And I remember thinking in that first class, and I have that very first painting actually, um, it was a still life. In that first class, I remember just thinking, I don't, I don't ever want to do anything else. Time sort of disappears. I could do this all day and completely lose track of time. And that, that still is a, is a reality for me when I'm in the zone and there's no phone calls or emails or any of that kind of stuff. Time just is irrelevant to the process. Yeah, it's great that you found your passion do you recall if there was a particular artist or body of work that, that really impacted you? I came so far. I mean, the art history class that I took in that class, it wasn't so much that there was an art, a particular artist that stood out to me. I was just enamored by the imagery, the color, the freedom in being able to be an artist, what it was to be an artist. It wasn't until I got to the state school where a friend of mine, Lee Buhena, a sax player who I used to jam with, introduced me to his grandmother. I remember between classes, we would go to her house and she would feed us, which was just such a blessing and probably more important than she even realized because it wasn't just the food, it was all the other kinds of nourishment that we were receiving while we were sitting at her table, the wisdom and the love. And uh, while sitting at that table one day, she pulled out a book on the Harlem Renaissance. And she, she asked me, she said, what are they teaching you over there at that school? And I said, well, you know, we're, we're learning about Picasso and Matisse and all this other stuff. And, and she said, well, what about Jacob? And I said, huh, what about Jacob Lawrence? I said, uh, no, we haven't really learned about him yet. Ramirez Bearden, uh, no, we, we haven't learned about him yet. Catlett, uh, no, who, who is that? 
And she just shook her head and she slid the book over to me and she said, they ain't teach you nothing over there. So <laughs> she started to she started to supplement my education. And so I'd come over between classes and go through her bookshelf. And, you know, we started with the Harlem Renaissance, which was really inspiring, obviously, to see our folks engaged in this process that I was so passionate about and yet had no idea that we were so deeply entwined into this stuff. And then she moved me on to Martin Purrier, who is to this day still one of her favorite sculptors. So, I, I mean, I feel like my introduction into art, even though it sort of started with the art history class, really came at the kitchen table with Diana Pompelli Bates, my auntie. How did your art professors impact you? <laughs> uh, in graduate school or undergrad? Those are two very different things. So given where you are now, right? Mentally, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which would have impacted you the most? That's really interesting. You know, every experience you have teaches you what to do or what not to do, right? I think they both, my undergrad and my graduate school experience, had major influence on how I think about art and myself and my practice now. But some of that is the rejection of some of the ideas that I was taught in uh, graduate school, not all, but some. And then some of it is really thinking back to, you know, one professor in particular in undergrad, Rupert Garcia, who by far had more impact on me than any teacher, professor in my education that I've ever worked with. And I think it was because he, I don't even know how to say this really, you respected Rupert from the first moment you entered his classroom. There was something about him that let you know from the bat that there were no other options. There were no other ways to engage with this particular individual. He was a man who took his art practice deadly serious and he made it clear on a daily basis that to him this was life and death and anybody who treated it as less did not deserve to be in his class. He had no problem verbalizing that and he had no problem kicking people out of his class. This is my advanced painting class at San Jose State. And I remember early on, after a couple of different critiques in Rupert's class, just watching people really crumble in front of him. There was this guy, his name was Mike, and he had this habit of doing his painting assignments just the day before the critique. You'd see him in the studio rushing out these paintings. And the truth of the matter is technically he was he was quite good. Um, he was talented in, the, in, in a way that allowed him to use this technique in most of his classes, this sort of like the night before cramming thing. And um, it didn't work on Rupert. Rupert felt that there was something missing from the work. And I remember uh, it was probably the third critique in the class. Rupert walk up to Mike's painting, push pin to the wall. And he turned and he said to Michael, how seriously do you want me to take this painting? And Mike kind of laughed and put his head down, um, laughed again and said, I don't know. And Rupert looked at him dead in his eye and said, next, and proceeded not to speak to him for the rest of the school year. Mike did not exist. That was the worst possible answer he could have given. I don't know. 
as I said, Rupert made it clear from the beginning of his class that this was life or death to him. And so he made his work that way and he instructed his students that way. He believed and still believes that art has the power to change the world, but only if you invest your soul into it and anything less is a waste of time. So more than any professor I've ever worked with, Rupert Garcia is the one that to this day still pulls on my soul as I'm working out ideas about the things that I want to do. I love that story. Why don't we talk about your practice? How would you define your practice? You know, it's interesting because at this stage of my, and I'm, I'm purposely using this word, at this stage of my career, my practice is um, is more complicated than it was at the beginning. At the beginning, it was me alone in my studio, just wrestling through ideas and trying to be honest and trying to to make work that moved me. And that part is that that's still that's still true. That's still accurate. But I also run a bunch of different things. I'm the president of Next Haven, which I'm incredibly proud of. And in terms of my practice, Next Haven is probably one of the most important pieces of art, if you want to speak about it that way, that I've ever made. But it requires an investment of time and energy that sometimes infringes on the studio day a little bit. And it's a sacrifice that I've chosen because I see the value and I see the impact that it's having on a generation of artists and a community. And for me, that feels like where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be doing right now. But it is definitely a difference between now and then. And and some of that is just growing up a little bit, I suppose. What I mean by that is like just recognizing that there is a power in mentorship. There's a, a value in helping raise up other artists behind you. And there is something that is, I don't know, this sort of cyclical kind of energy and power that comes from putting your stuff aside in order to help raise somebody else up. And so it does impact my schedule and my day, but I don't, I don't regret it in any way. When you're in the studio alone working, creating, do you think about who your audience is? I try my best not to. I really, really do. I, I, I was having a conversation with my art director of the production company. I started Revolution Ready, and we were editing a piece. He's, he's our editor. And I was saying to him how I very much am not concerned with the audience while I'm making the piece. I try really hard to block all of that out for a number of different reasons. Number one, because it is virtually impossible to put yourself in the mind of other people as they stand in front of the thing that you make. And 90% of the time, we get it wrong. We believe that we know what they're gonna think or feel as they are in front of that artwork. But the truth of the matter is we don't know. And so spending your energy, your artistic energy, speculating on that is in my mind, not useful. And so I think the most powerful thing is to recognize how subjective our experience is and in getting comfortable with that subjectivity and being honest about that subjectivity, we can sometimes create something that is paradoxically so subjective that it touches on the universal. And it's in doing that that we create great art. 
I have never experienced it the other way around. I've never experienced sitting down and trying to make something that works for everybody. And it actually does. My experience is it just does not work that way. I think we have to accept the specificity of our worldview, of our life experiences, of our cultural background and upbringing, of the good things and the bad things that we have lived through and recognize that all of that gets poured into what you make. And when we are truthful about that, and I think there's a difference between truthful and facts, and we can talk about that later, but when we're truthful about that experience, I think we can touch on greatness. Are there thoughts or concepts that connect your work? Me? (laughs) I mean, it's like that thing they say, like, wherever you go in life, (laughs) there you are. (laughs) You know, I think that subjectivity, the reality that um, it's always being seen through your own eyes and the reality that your whole life you never really see yourself. That is to say, your eyes never come outside of your skull, turn back and look at you. A video recording, a film is not that, a photograph is not that. We don't experience ourselves the way the rest of the world experiences us. And the irony of that, of course, is that we pour all of that into every single thing that we make. So if there is a consistency in the work, it is my thinking, the way I wrestle with problems. I think there is a consistency in my willingness to sacrifice what is aesthetic for what is beautiful. I see those as potentially different things. The willingness to undo a thing in order to get to a deeper idea, a deeper concept. That means sometimes cutting the painting out that you've just spent a month on, or it means dipping a painting in tar, or it means whitewashing the entire thing. Because I no longer see my painting as the art. I see the painting as a element in the art itself. So it's like a color on the palette and I can make a portrait of a founding father that is historically accurate and with all of the traditional techniques that one might use and recognize that in order to articulate the ideas that I'm attempting to get at, I'm going to have to unmake that painting. So I think that is the consistency in the work, obviously the subjectivity of it, that it's me and the willingness to sacrifice whatever it is to go for a deeper idea. And when do you know a work is finished? Ooh, that question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For me, it has to do with the number of questions. Well, there's two experiences of this. There's the visual experience of a painting being done, and then there's the sort of intellectual experience of a painting being done. There's this thing I do when I'm working on painting, and I feel like it's coming close. I let my eyes travel through the composition and I'm trying to take note of the places on this path through the painting where I get stuck, where I stop and it's difficult for me to move on to the next part in this journey through the composition. And usually, usually those are places where I'm stuck, where I stop. 
where I need to go back and work. Sometimes that's something in the background. Sometimes that's a character who shouldn't be there or a character who needs to engage with an object or any number of different things. But as I journey through the composition, if I find that my eye keeps coming back to this spot, to that spot, to that spot, to me, that tells me that there's something not working because I'm looking for a kind of balance. I'm looking for an unfettered journey through the composition, something that allows me to see and experience every detail on that path, but nothing that stops me so long that I get lost in one part of the painting because it's a sort of like symphony, right? It's many different elements together to create a whole. So that's sort of like the visual experience of working my way through a composition. And then the, the sort of intellectual part of that is you work your way through, but then there are just these questions that keep coming to mind. And there are more, in my assessment, there are far more questions than there are answers. There will always be questions. There should, in my work, there should always be questions. There should always be places of uncertainty. But when you feel like at the end of your journey, there are far more questions than there are answers, I tend to go back in and try to resolve some of those to, again, try to create a balance. Interesting. Do you listen to music while you're working? I, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, right now, I'm in the process of, well, I'm making uh, my first feature film, and I am listening to composers for scores, and that has really changed the vibe of the sonic space in my in my studio most of the time that's kind of what i'm thinking through right now and i'm i'm kind of excited about the realization of how much music changes your energy as you work and how in some ways strategic I need to be about my musical choices. Um, sometimes it's important for me to choose music that is in line with what I'm feeling emotionally. And then sometimes I realize that it's important for me to contradict that feeling in order to get to something else. So I feel like music in the studio is incredibly important and powerful in the realization of the things that I make. Do you feel black art can be defined? Hmm. I mean, I would find that as difficult to answer as can art be defined. I don't think that question becomes more nuanced or complicated by adding black to the sentence. But um, there's this quote from Ramir Bearden which I'm going to butcher, but the heart of it is basically he's talking to someone who's interviewing him and he says, I don't mind being called a black artist as long as you call some of the other leading artists, he says, Pearlstein at the time, if you call them white artists. And he said, because you don't, just call me a leading American artist. And I think that's interesting. I resonate with some of that, not all of that. I'm proud of being called a black artist, particularly when it's by black people. <laughs> the time when I don't like it is when it's used to be a box, when it's used to confine me, when it's used to say, you stay right here. You're allowed to think these kinds of thoughts. You're allowed to make these kinds of pictures. You're allowed to address these kinds of ideas. That's when I don't like it. 
I don't like it when it's restrictive, but I love it when it speaks to the legacy of elders who came before me that made it possible for me to do the things that I do. So I think it's such a complicated question and it's in my mind, a beautiful question. And I love being asked that because I love being able to talk about those influences that made me who I am. (laughs) How do you keep learning? Keep living, keep your eyes open and keep living and recognize daily that you don't know as much as you think you know. And I feel like that's my reality anyway, I think in some ways. Kids really help you with that. (laughs) They are perpetual reminders that you don't know everything that you think that you know. And they, with their limited understanding of the world, they can still say things that blow your mind. So my children are major inspirations for me, maybe not necessarily in the in the sense of the objects that I make, but my passion to continue living and learning, I think is deeply rooted in my family. What are you excited about right now? I'm excited about the fear that I feel as I introduce myself to a completely new medium. I consider myself a pretty confident person. I'm not easily frightened, but I am trying to embrace this sense of fear and use that and turn that fear, which is its own energy, into a useful energy in this process of making a film. It's unlike anything I've ever done before. It is so many different department heads, so many different people who frankly know so much more than I do about this medium. And they are looking to me for my subjective, specific opinion about what we are to do next. And it's a script that couldn't possibly be more personal. It's a moment in my life. It's a script that I wrote. I'm directing and it's about an artist, of course. And so I'm also making all of the paintings in the film. And I'm also one of the producers on the film. So I couldn't be more intertwined with this particular project. But I have to be honest that there's a kind of fear that I haven't had to deal with since I was a very young artist. And I'm excited about that. Those butterflies that I feel as I get on a conversation with a composer or a line producer or editor or whatever, I'm energized by that. Yeah, definitely keep growing. I've really enjoyed this insightful conversation. And this is the last question. And you may have touched upon it in some ways, but what do you feel is the purpose of art and what is your role? I feel like there's two ways to answer that question. There's the answer to that question, which for me, I can only answer as an artist. And then there's an answer to that question that speaks to my experience of other people's work in the world. And for me, the purpose is purpose. I don't even know if I would use that word, but art is a space for me to wrestle with challenges, love, fear, pain, joy, the things 
that bother me, the things that confound me, the things that make me happy. Art is that place where I'm able to freely disassemble these challenges and put them back together and take them outside of myself and observe them in a way that helps me grow and helps me feel more alive. In some ways, the purpose of art, again, I'm not sure I would use that expression, but of other people has done the same thing. When I look at a Carrie James Marshall painting and I feel more known, I feel less alone in the world. I feel that the specificity of my experience is still specific, but understood by others. I think that's one of the most exciting, powerful things about art and the idea that we can make these objects, these paintings, these experiences, and that they have the power to worm themselves in the minds and spirits of people outside of us. I think it's like a kind of magic that I'm forever drawn to. Well, thank you very much for everything you do. It's, it's very important, and I certainly appreciate it. And I can confidently say most other people do also. So thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate this, Titus. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. 